This is not about public safety. This is about an industry that is okay with exploiting the poor and people of color to make money. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. And I'm your host, Skylar Dom. This week, I talked to Bianca Tylek, who's the founder of the Corrections Accountability Project. The mission of the Corrections Accountability Project is to combat the commercialization of the criminal justice system and to end the exploitation of those the system touches. And there is plenty of exploitation, as Bianca is going to lay out for us. So here it is. Bianca, I thought we could start off by having you explain the mission of the Corrections Accountability Project. Sure. Our mission is to eliminate the influence of commercial interests on the criminal system and end the exploitation of justice-involved people in their communities. Um, so what are some of the ways, can you walk us through some of the ways that those incentives are currently misaligned right now? Sure. Well, there's a lot of misalignment of incentives as you're working either with both the correctional agencies as well as with companies and sort of the private sector that is involved, right? But it's more than just misaligned incentives. It's outright exploitation and abuse Mm -hmm. of people and using sort of the carceral system in order to make money. So you have um, a whole industry and economy that has been built on the promise of mass incarceration, and it's dependent on the continuation of mass incarceration. So looking at specific examples, you could take the hot topics that have been discussed, things like private prisons, the forced occupancy rates. What do you mean by forced occupancy rates? Sorry. So in a lot of private prison contracts, they require the state to keep their beds filled within their facility at a certain rate. Usually those rates are almost all upwards of 80%, a lot are 90%, and some are even higher than that. Meaning that if the state does not provide the body for that cell, that bed, uh, the state has to pay for it anyway. Uh, There's also been a lot recently about telephone system um, and obviously the exploitative um, and abusive cost rates that both companies and agencies are making money on. So it's not just these very high um, rates that are being charged by the companies. Some percentage of that rate is often driven by the fact that state agencies require commissions to be paid out per call. And so different states require different um, a different commission rate, but it also affects the procurement process, meaning like the selection of companies. So so the, the state agency is taking a cut of Correct. Okay. Exactly. And so now you have bidding processes where the company that essentially offers the most in commissions or kickbacks is the one that's going to get the contract. Um, and that usually raises the cost or the rate of the call. Oh, and a lot of the ways that companies have actually been getting around increasing call rates and the commissions that they have to pay out to systems is by charging fees. And fees are not susceptible to the same commission model. So they get to take 100% of that Interesting. themselves. Yeah. So they basically set up a contract with the state wherein the state is to receive X percent. And then having locked in that contract, they just start charging fees instead exactly. of... Okay. And now... Raising rates, yeah. Yeah. And now there's been some discussion and some states have started to put into their contracts or even some... When FCC was still interested in regulating this... Um, 
uh, prior to the current uh, administration, the FCC had actually put in caps um, on these calls, and then that decision was litigated by some of these companies as an overextension of regulatory power. And so in that realm, basically what happened, though, with the current administration is that the new head of the FCC decided not to defend the cap rates. Which is, I mean, so another person who's going to be on this podcast is Wesley Keynes, who's, mm-hmm. we were talking about reentry work. And one of the things that's so important for someone to come back successfully into society, quote-unquote, is to have family ties, right? So to alienate, to take someone like an average of like 100 miles away from where they live and then make it prohibitively expensive for them to keep in touch with the people who are going to help them when they get out of prison just seems counterproductive. It is incredibly counterproductive. I mean, there's been tons of studies that have talked about the connection between having community ties and lower recidivism. Being able to be connected back home as sort of a public safety measure from the standpoint of, you know, rehabilitation and actually getting people to re-enter into society uh, more successfully, but also, you know, a very human cost, like just for what what are people supposed to have? Am I allowed to be able to reach out to my mother or my children? And what are the effects on the people back home and in the communities of having um, these people sort of taken from their lives and then told, here's what you have to pay in order to see them? And just so you know, the the current head of the FCC used to be an attorney for one of these companies. Mm, That's shocking. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) But then there's things that are much less talked about, right? There's the outrageous costs of sending money inside. So take a Western Union. Did something like five or ten dollars flat rate essentially to send like up to five thousand dollars. Well, in prison, Western Union limits the amount that you can send to three hundred dollars, so that it essentially can collect flat rates off of higher usage. So, that's one way in which they utilize and exploit the specific situation of people who are incarcerated in their families. Then to aggravate that, instead of that kind of flat rate, they have a sliding scale that can be as much as $13, $14, $15 as you start getting to those higher numbers. In fact, there's a jail in uh, Texas where Western Union manages um, their money transfers, and it costs... (laughs) $10 $10 to send $10. You know, we all know that incarceration most deeply affects people in poverty and people of color. So it's like there may not be large, you know, volumes of money. And so as you talk about lower and lower um, amounts that are being sent inside, the higher the percentage that the fee actually is. Because the scale, even though sliding, definitely collects a lot more in the percentage side sort of on the lower end. And then to make matters worse... Let's think about one more thing that affects people in poverty and and people who are incarcerated in their families is folks may not have credit cards, right? May not be able to do these things via phone, via um, the internet, may not have access to all that. And so if you want to do this in person, it's a $15 flat fee. And so now if you want to deposit $10, you're paying $15 at a Western Union site in order to do that. And so those are, you know, those are ways in which the industry intentionally exploits the position of people in prison. It's not the service provider, quote-unquote, that people like to believe they are. There is an argument that privatizing these services mm-hmm. is a road to better management, um, which you know leads to efficiencies both for the company but like better outcomes for the general population and better services for the people inside. Yeah. That obviously breaks down. Where's it? What is your response to that? So it, 
just frankly hasn't proven correct in the prison industry from the operation of private prisons to how telephone calls are oriented to healthcare services inside to food services in no way has the privatization of any of those things really improved quality cost or efficiency frankly in some cases in certain industries certain sectors you're looking at um, there might be some cost efficiencies but at a significant decrease to quality and I think and and this is very, very clear, I think, in many ways for looking at um, all the lawsuits that are consistently filed. Take Aramark on the food side and the number of lawsuits they get, Horizon in healthcare. Just one by one, you can start looking at every single industry and all the companies there and how often they're not just sued, but successfully sued and, you know, and settle yeah. in those particular cases. How many prisons now have, you know, consent decrees uh, of different types or federal monitors in place because of, uh, you know, so many of these quality flaws of the actual services. And that's not to say that government is great and every single time the government offers a service that it's particularly um, strong. I mean, I think there's, you know, many systems that also have uh, used public health systems, for example, in their prisons and also are terrible, right? I mean, in the end, people don't care about people in prison. Right. And so by virtue of that, it's okay to provide a substandard service. And so, you know, that's that's a big part of it. I think the other thing is it's it's taking a look at exactly when people say there's a cost efficiency, how that's being calculated. A lot of it is very misleading. So if you take private prisons, for example, and you think about the fact that they'll say that they cut costs, one of the ways in which they do that is by cherry-picking the actual folks who are incarcerated in their facility. So they don't provide, you know, hospice care. Um, they don't provide uh, sort of health services for folks who have more severe illnesses because that's expensive. And so the state is left with all the facilities that have those, uh, you know, types of people incarcerated with those types of need. And so their system looks more expensive on an average, you know, per person basis, but it's simply because the private sector has taken everyone who's inexpensive, quote unquote, to cage and house. Um, and then said, look, we on average, our price is lower, right? And that's just one of the many examples. I mean, they tend to try to run facilities that are, you know, more minimum, medium security, so they don't have to write, run all the things that are required in a maximum security facility. They understaff, they have higher uses of force rates. I mean, all these other things that, qual- you know, quality-wise are suffering. But on top of that, I mean, the cost argument is actually just not comparing uh, apples to apples all the time. And so that's something that needs to be further, I think, unpacked in many ways because they're not really saving the government in that form. And then the last thing I'll sort of say on that is that there's been a few case studies done of facilities that have actually shifted from being privatized back to the public management, and actually the cost went down. So there's, I think, in some ways, that's something that we as a society have just adopted and therefore think to be true that hasn't necessarily panned out in many cases. Okay. So we're obviously implicated as taxpayers whose, mm. you know, by whose proxies or representatives are making policy decisions to privatize some of these services. But how implicated are is the American public financially in these institutions? Are large money managers and wealth funds, you know, is my retirement account, were I to have one, (laughs) is my retirement account investing in these services? 
Definitely. The reality is, is that most of these services and these service companies are not publicly traded. So we look at these companies in basically four buckets. There's like your publicly traded companies. There's your um, large private that are owned by private equity funds. There's your large, totally privately owned uh, or companies. And then there's your like mom and pops, right? And then there's yeah. spaces that are really fragmented and have like these just like really tiny companies that service them. And so the number of companies that are publicly traded is small. It's not negligible, right? But it's small. With that said, you know, a few of the biggest companies that are publicly traded, you would divide that group even into two, which is companies that exclusively make their um, revenue, you know, profit from the corrections industry, and then those who that is like one sector, one business segment within their mm-hmm. their operations. And so the most obvious examples are your um, Core Civic, formerly CCA, uh, Corrections Corporation of America, NGO group um, that are publicly traded private prison companies, right? Yeah. They operate and manage prisons and de- immigration detention centers, which is their, like, fastest growing piece of their business right now. And those companies, and I think it's really important for people to know this, the biggest owner of those two companies are Vanguard and Fidelity, which are also quintessentially the largest 401k providers in the country. And so, and when I say largest, I don't mean they happen, you know, they own less than 1%. They own like 15% of CCA. Well, Vanguard by itself owns around 12 to 15% of CCA and around 10 to 12% of GEO. Mm -hmm. Fidelity owns another large substantial chunk. So you're talking... Anyone who's operating out, you know, out in the world, um, folks in the free world, and you have a Vanguard or Fidelity fund, uh, either asset manager for your 401k or you're holding one of their funds in your own 401k that might be managed by a different company, you probably own one of these companies. Interesting. It's, it's, so there's a possibility of like the same divest movement that has been more or less successful in it with respect to fossil fuels. 100%. Um, And it's, in fact, so that was, you know, there was a few schools, like big um, university endowments that were talking about divesting and students, you know, doing movements sort of on campus around divestment. And then most recently, in sort of the most um, exciting and promising move, uh, New York City became the first city um, to divest from the prison industry. It's pension funds. Yeah. so I know that the um, Corrections Ab- Accountability Project focuses on ancillary services, right? Because there's a lot of attention that's being paid to private prisons and geo group and those mm-hmm. kinds of... So are those businesses more of the scale, the mom-and-pop scale, fragmented and pr- owned by private equity firms? It, yeah, it really depends. I would say ancillary services, there are far fewer that are... Um, public that are solely corrections focused. If you take in the telephone, um, te- the telecom space, you take a GTL or a Securus. Um, those, are, those are firms. Those are, yeah, those are, sorry. <laughs> Just to be clear. Just are, to be clear, those, those are. Those are laws that I should know. No. <laughs> those are large um, companies, right? Um, and they together own anywhere between 60 and 80 percent of the market. There's been estimates sort of are in that ballpark, essentially. And one of the reasons we won't know for sure, you know, in some senses is because you don't have access to their financials, right? Interesting. So, you know, that's challenging and they're not susceptible to FOIA, but they are government contractors. So you'd like to think there is a way for me to actually hmm. know what your financials are. And, and you can FOIA 
or open FOIA access, being the Freedom of, Freedom of Information, Information Act. Act. So you can add to that whatever other records or right to know laws that might exist in specific states, but generally under that premise, um, you can send those requests to the government. And, you know, let's say I asked for a contract, either a contract or, or the actual bid that was submitted to an RFP, like the winning bid for mm-hmm. GTL or whatever. I might get that back and all the financials will be redacted. All that to say, these companies are owned, both GTL and Securus are owned by private equity firms. Um, your major commissary companies, Keefe, uh, Trinity Services, they're also owned by private equity firms. Um, most of these companies are not going to be public. Horizon, a major healthcare provider, yeah. um, MHM, Wexford, and those are mostly private owned. And so it's, you know, it's tough to attack them necessarily in the same way. Now, I say that also saying that the bigger ones need financing from places. Where are they collecting their debt from? What, you know, what bank is giving them access to capital, capital essentially, right? And I would say that there's a few providers that are public. Aramark is a public company. They don't obviously just operate in prisons. Um, They're much broader, but that is one of their government segments, right? And... They have a ton of lawsuits against them. So for maggot-infested foods and, and yeah. all types of things. So so what are some of the... Um, so we've talked about telecom, healthcare, food services. Are there any other major um, areas of extra... Of, of services that are being privatized or yeah. um, are at risk of being privatized that are problematic? So almost everything inside prisons has been privatized. We've divided the companies into about 12 sectors. Um, So those being, so we mentioned uh, food and commissary, telecom, healthcare, there's transportation, case management, security, operations and management, construction and financing, uh, financial services, um, and there's three, oh, education and, you know, vocational services. So that's when you get into all the discussions about prison labor mm-hmm. um, and that. And then there's a few more that are escaping my mind right <laughs> that now. Was impre- said, that was impressive. It was like, yeah. yeah, there's something like that. Um, do, you ever, do you touch on prison labor at all? We do. I mean, it's, in, it's one of those sectors, and so we talk about it. Um, I mean, you know, like sort of everything else, I think, Prison labor is obviously another topic that I think does get people riled up, which is, you know, is important, um, people enraged. Uh, we're actually just doing a um, kind of search for companies that have it explicitly in their supplier code that they will not use um, prison labor because that's, I think, a, a hot topic in some some mm-hmm. circles. But, you know, I, I think one of my examples around unethical nonprofits because I talk about a lot more than just privatization mm-hmm. right we like at the corrections accountability project we intentionally use the term commercialization because commercialization is not just implicating the private sector the, the reality is that there's public sector nonprofits illicit actors as well as the private sector that are all um, making money on this industry there's a nonprofit in Florida that is manages Florida's correctional industry, mm. uh, and you know their CEOs are bringing in, you know, high six figure salaries, four hundred, yeah. five hundred thousand dollars, and you know prisoners in Florida are making cents on an hour, right? And so mm-hmm. sure, it's a nonprofit, um, but you can collect income in more ways than a net income line. 
Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine once where I was kind of outraged at the wages that people are paid in prison. Mm-hmm. And his point was, well, what do they have to spend it on? <laughs> so I wonder, what's your response to that? All of the things that aren't provided. So it's really interesting because I think we pay people a lot less in prison and then we charge them a lot more for the things that mm-hmm. we would on the outside buy, right? So take a pack of ramen noodles. A pack of ramen noodles outside industry and any college student probably knows this. It's anywhere between like 15 and 25 cents, right? Yeah. Like, come on. It's $1.25 if you buy it from the vending machine, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, that's exactly what it costs inside. Mm-hmm. Right? It costs somewhere between 75 cents and $1.25. So you're talking about a anywhere between like 300 and like 5 or 600% markup for people who are making 2% of what our minimum wage is on the outside. I mean, that that's a little backwards in some senses. So I think there's, I mean, there's that. There's also, and those are just like the daily needs. And, and why do you have daily needs in commissary? Because your food is terrible. One, one, sort of quality and service cut on one end is creating even probably on the other side for like other suppliers. So um, so that's, you know, one piece of the puzzle, not to mention that they don't offer actual nutritional items, both for food and commissary, but um, that's, you know, sort of its own piece that contributes to the really or poor health that people are in when they leave facilities, not just mental health from the trauma of being inside a facility, but the physical health. I mean, people who are released from prison are 13 times more likely to die than the average person the first month that they're out um, and four times higher for the first year that they're out. And it's in, wow. in that first year, the leading causes are like heart disease, diabetes, not, you know, some other, not murder, right? Yeah. Like not the thing that people want to all associate with folks who are coming home. Um it's actual preventable diseases that were not either treated by that really shoddy healthcare that's inside or that was exacerbated by the quality of food, access of food from commissary and things like that. Um, so, I mean, you know, that's one piece of the puzzle. A few others has to do with that more and more things are being taken away. It's like you want deodorant, you have to go buy that. You want any hygiene products, you have to go buy those, right, um, in a lot of systems, Um so some people are still buying their own shoes, right? Like all this stuff. So when you say there's nothing to buy, that's just not true. And then don't, you can't even get started on places where you're actually charged room and board for being there, which is like ludicrous. You're going to take my freedom, tell me like I have to live in a cage and then you're going to charge me to do that. And, you know, and in many cases that's at jails where people aren't even sentenced yet. Yeah, people right? haven't even been convicted of anything. Exactly. They're... They're pre-trial, right? Yeah. No waiting. Just just to clarify for sake of the podcast, because it took me a couple months into law school <laughs> to learn this, jails are where, are where you are housed before you've been convicted of something, and then prison is where you go after you've been sentenced. There's some wiggle room on that. Sometimes you can serve your sentence in a jail, but just clarifying for yeah. both uh, Usually the only time you serve your sentence in a jail is if it's a short enough period. So in every county... Um, across the country, there's some kind of stipulation that says, you know, if your sentence is less than a year, you can serve it at the jail. But yeah, but so there are these like room and board fees and these other things. And the, the other interesting thing is if you do have a job that actually pays more, you're then uniquely charged room and board. 
<laughs> like that if like you took one of the like the jobs cleaning the floors that pay like 12 cents you wouldn't be charged at room and board but then if you take one of the private sector jobs that have by law are supposed to pay prevailing wages which there's a lot of ways in which that's kind of avoided um, but regardless, if you are, now all of a sudden we're going to take out these other things that we wouldn't have otherwise confiscated from you. It's, it's strange. Hmm. Um, and then not to mention, I mean, the the rate of calls, as we already discussed. And what about restitution and fines and fees that are assessed by the court? There's so many things to pay for. I mean, not to mention that oftentimes child support is not suspended while somebody's serving time. So that's still a thing, and people walk out with thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in debt in child support mm-hmm. that they have to pay once they're coming home, right? More than 50% of people behind bars are parents yeah. of people under the age of 18. Wow. There's a lot of costs. So I know your work gets very wonky very fast. <laughs> Can you just talk about one or two projects that you are working on in the Corrections Accountability Project that you're excited about? Yeah, sure. So... Um, So one of the things that we are really interested in doing is just shifting the whole narrative around how finances are looked at in um, the correction space. Right now, I found that anytime you mention finances um, around incarceration, everyone's mind immediately jumps to the conservative argument of, like, we spend too much on incarceration. And the reality is, like, we're never going to solve our crisis in this country if all we're worried about is what government is spending. Because anyone will spend anything to be safe. And so as long as the rhetoric or the narrative is still this is necessary for public safety or we incarcerate people because of public safety, we're not going to see it cut, right? Like it's the same as asking people to, we're going to cut the counterterrorism budget in half. Yeah. Cool. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like it's an, like everybody will kind of just turn into necessary evil and move on with their lives. You'd, you'd rather, like, cut education. In Oklahoma, they're literally, in some districts, just reduce the school week from five days to four days because they're having a budget crisis and they can't pay for education and pay f- teachers. But they have one of the fastest-growing prison systems. Like, they're, yeah. for Oklahoma, not being a huge state, has a lot of people incarcerated. Yeah. So if that's the narrative we keep going with, then you're not going to see spending or anything like that decrease like that's just not going to be a motivating argument not to mention that when you make that spending argument all it does is justify in people's minds the idea of moving to the private sector right which is as we've already discussed at best even if you could demonstrate cost savings a short-term fix to what will be a long-term exacerbation of incarceration because you'll just have all these companies that are now dependent on this that are driving incarceration uh, all over the country. Mm-hmm. So Through lobbying. Through lobbying, campaign finance, yeah, through all their, um, and through just like shitty practices, really poor rehabilitative programming and stuff like that. You have people coming back nonstop. So mm-hmm. instead what we're trying to do is we're trying to shift that narrative so that people understand that this is not about public safety. Um, this is about an industry that is okay with exploiting the poor and people of color to make money. And so in order to do that, um, we're essentially analyzing um, the revenues that this industry is making. So rather than everybody being able to recite how much money we spend on incar- like to incarcerate somebody every year, what if we had a number that was here's how much is being made off of the incarceration of someone every year? And essentially demonstrating that... While everyone wants to panic 
every time, you know, socialism mentioned the idea of redistribution of wealth, that there is a redistribution of wealth happening. It's just in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And that's what's driving, you know, I mean, one of the many factors is driving inequality. Switching gears, uh, what do you think is the ideal management structure for our prisons and our prison services? Is it a, com- it is, it is a, is it a public sector function? It is a public sector function. I, I, I think holistically, and this is not to say that the government does it well, I think that no one should be able to make money off of human caging. We've decided that as a society. Human trafficking is an actual crime. Kidnapping's a crime. Slavery is, in theory, abolished. Conceptually, all these things we've decided as a society are wrong, at least on, you know, in our laws and on our books they are, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're happening. And so, you know, the reality is I would love to see a world where we didn't cage people, humans, right? Prisons weren't a necessity, and frankly, I don't think they are, but, you know, that was... That, that's that's the type of transformation that's at some point some vision that we're all working towards. But at the very least, I think it's definitely not something that capitalism should be allowed to take over. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much to the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for supporting this podcast, specifically Anna Wyke and Brooke Hopkins. Thank you for your help. Thanks to the folks at Pottington Bear who composed our theme music, and thanks to you for listening and caring about such an important subject.